Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. This last Sunday after our Zoom call, um, I stayed on the call and had a conversation with a friend in the church. And as we were processing the killing of Ahmaud Arbery and the, the events of the last week, he said, you know what? In some ways, I understand the why and, and the how of, of racism existing still in our country. But here's what I don't understand. Why the response of Christians is the way that it is. Like, how can overt racism and a more subtle form of suspicion and a bias still exist in the church? Like, are these Christians really Christians? And if so, like, how are they so ignorant of the teaching and the way of Jesus? Well, to ask what my friend was asking another way would be to say, why is the American church so immature? Why among those who claim to be Christians is there such a conformity to the patterns and the ways of the rest of the country? If the Apostle Paul, who's the author of the letter that we've been studying, were to give a state of the church in America, similar to the way he's probably doing for the churches in the region that he had helped plant and is now writing um, where Ephesus was located, he probably would say and answer my friend's question far better than I could. And he would say with a conviction in his tone and sadness in his heart and a power in his eyes, this is not the way that you learned Christ. Assuming, of course, that you have heard of him and that you've learned of him as the truth is in Jesus. That's verse 20 of Ephesians chapter 4. And it is, I think, the answer to why racism persists in the church in America. Did you catch the word? Assumption. Assumption. There's an assuming that people have heard of Christ. There's an assuming that people have learned the ways of Jesus. But in many cases, the goal of maturity in the faith is missing from the conversation entirely. I think the American church, it is often assumed that people have heard and have learned the ways of Jesus when they haven't. What is the aim of discipleship? Like, what is God's blueprint for the church? Is it not to grow up in every way into him who is the head of the church? That's Jesus. That's what we read last week. God's blueprint for the church is that there would be an expectation of maturation. God's blueprint for the church is that there would be an expectation of maturation. According to the letter to the Ephesians, God's blueprint for the church, the marker of a healthy church is not what it's offering to you, but what it's asking you. This expectation of maturation is not burdensome. It doesn't sort of push upon you with guilt and shame. It's not controlling, or, but it is clear that King Jesus is going somewhere and that he's trying to take us along with him to that place where he says, come with me, all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. 
but not rest only. Bind yourselves to me. Yoke yourself to me. Learn from me. I will teach you my ways. So listen, the effect of Ephesians verse 1 through 16, what we studied last week, should be for the church to respond both with majesty and a cry for mercy. Like we should cry majesty because of the beauty of a picture of diversity in unity, functioning together, offering our various gifts up so that we might grow up into maturity. But we should also, when we take stock of where the church is versus the blueprint laid out in this letter, we should cry mercy. Mercy because we so fall short. So how do we get there? Toward maturity. Toward greater unity in diversity. Toward building one another up in love and in truth. Well, the answer is simple for the Apostle Paul. We need to have an expectation of maturation. That's what he's saying. And I want to do this. Let's dive right into verse um, 17. This is the the beginning of our passage for today. And let me read it to you. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of hearts. They have become callous, having given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Okay, Paul says, listen, this I say in the Lord, he's he's being real clear, he's laying down, the Lord is saying this through him to the church, that they should no longer walk as the Gentiles do. But wait a second, he's writing to Gentiles. He's writing to those who were outside of the ethnic people of Israel. They were not the Jews. So what is he saying? What he's not asking them to do is to forsake their ethnic differences. That's not the gospel. The gospel does not create sameness across cultures. However, he is urging them to not let their culture of origin, but the character of Jesus to mark them. Right? The Gentiles were marked by the worship of many things. They were characterized by sexual indulgence rather than faithfulness. They had a form of worship that involved prostitution and the praise of fertility. They were generally given to immorality, to the gain of self at any cost. So how do we translate this? What does it mean for us to bring this word? Is he speaking to the Gentiles today? I I think we could easily translate this. If you just reflect on it, it's simple enough to go, listen, church, no longer walk as Americans do. Paul would say, church, you are to no longer walk as Americans do. This is what historian Mark Knoll says in his assessment of the problem of racism and of the immaturity in the church in America. He would say the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is not much of an evangelical mind. Meaning the mind of the church in our part of the world is far more of an American mind than a gospel mind. That is because sin is so subtle and so pervasive, far more sweeping and affecting than we give it credit for. 
It is not as if there is a blue sky of American progress with one blighted cloud of sin upon it. It is as if the entirety of the skies have overcast clouds shading the land below. The sun still shines through. There is still a likeness of God and a capacity for kindness and goodness, but sin has stained everything, shaded everything. And you can see it in three ways in these coming verses. When it comes to behavior, when it comes to being, and when it comes to belonging. Behavior, verse 19, let's start there. They have become callous, hardened, and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Callous, of course, is that hardened state of impenetrable skin, right? And sensuality, interestingly, is the opposite, this kind of unfeelingness towards God, an unfeeling spiritual sense that's given over to every kind of physical, sexual, emotional sensation. Greedy here, almost better translated, continually lusting after impurity. This is a behavioral effect of sin. That there is a way in which the people of America walk that is in some ways contrary to the way that Christians should walk. And so Paul is saying not just the behavior, but it goes, of course, as behavior always does, signaling deeper into our being. Look at verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Darkened and understanding here means not that they haven't learned anything. If you look at the progress of our country, of course we've learned many things. Of course we have incredible advancement in a number of different fields. But when it comes to learning ultimate things, spiritual things, there is a darkened understanding that comes particularly from being alienated, separated from the life of God. There is no life that brings light. There is darkness that comes from the death of sin. And then there is a hardening, a callousing of heart in which the heart is incapable, hardened to spiritual sense at all. But this is because the being of a person and perhaps of a people as a whole belongs to something other than God. The life of God is not in it, animating it, filling it, but, but it belongs to sin. This is the way the Bible paints it. Either you belong to sin or you belong to grace. Verse 22 says that, that the people here are to put off their former manner of life that is corrupt through deceitful desires because it belongs, those practices belong to a former life. This is exactly what's going on, that there is a way in which those who, those who reject God belong to sin. There's a way in which sin is the core desire to, to work and to operate apart from God rather than to work and to, and to operate with God, in dependence upon God. A heart that at the base of it chooses by its own desire to operate on its own rather than a heart at the base and core of it that chooses to operate with God. Sin, as the great philosopher of the past century, Dallas Willard says, is the disordering of our being. 
He says this, the disordering of our being is idolatry in all of its kinds, including those who worship the good life, as it's often called. This is what he means to live alienated from the life of God, that the order of influence, even dominance within the core of your being is that the body has its primary sway. And then the body, after that comes the soul, the mind, the thoughts, and the feelings. And then finally, down at the bottom of the totem pole is the very spirit, character, heart of a person. And then thrown a bone is God. But what happens when the life of God comes into the souls of men and women is that this complete flip and reordering of our being happens that God is the one with the greatest influence and dominance and then the spirit, the heart, the core of our being and then the mind perceiving, thinking and feeling affecting our entire soul and then finally the urges of the body at the bottom. Sin affects behavior, being, and who we belong to. But the, the blueprint that God has for us as those who are to love him, depend on him, and to love others is completely flipped upside down by sin. And what Dallas Willard is saying is that nothing less than a total renovation of the heart will do for humanity. This is why I think the greatest metaphor for conversion is perhaps that of a caterpillar. Right, a caterpillar who's dependent upon the resources of God, sort of eating his way, gaining mass. You remember the hungry, hungry caterpillar, right? And, and all of a sudden, if you parallel somebody who's come to depend on God, even in a small sense, and begins digesting the food and the teachings of Jesus, filling up on to the point of chrysalis, all of it wrapped together in this moment of cocoon where the entirety of God in his incredible grace majestically transforms mush into something that used to crawl upon the ground into something that flies. The old is gone. The new has come. The old self, the former manner of life, Paul is saying, with its corrupt desires, its futile mind, its darkened understanding, its alienation from God, its ignorance, its hardness, its sensuality, its greedy needs to go. And the new self being renewed after the spirit of the mind in the likeness of God, created in Christ Jesus for the righteousness and holiness of truth. The shift is a concern from what I can get. That's what all idolatry says. What can I get? What can I do to get what I want? Whereas the concern for the new life that's possible in Christ is what I've got. What has God given me by grace? A brand new identity, a complete reordering of my being. The shift is from a codependent and an entangled person to a creator dependent. Even a true self. Don't you see that the way of the Americans is the disordered self? The body with all its urges and the mind and the feelings ruling the day. And then finally, last is considered God. But this is not the way of Jesus. This is not the way that Paul is urging the church of, to go. He's saying, don't walk 
after the way of the Americans, but walk in the way of Jesus. And the way of Christ is a life of ongoing spiritual transformation. Like, I wonder if you, how you perceive the way of Jesus. Like, does the proposal of learning from him, following him, belonging to him seem dull to you? A lot of people that I talk to, that's the case. And I believe it's one of the greatest deceptions about Jesus, that he's no fun, that he lacks joy, that his way is burdensome. That couldn't be farther from the truth if you actually read the scriptures, right? He is the one in whom truth is revealed. This is what verse 21 says, assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. That's why the church is to speak the truth in love so that we grow up into Christ. That's why we're to put off, put off the old self and put on the new that is being renewed after the holiness and righteousness of truth. Jesus is the fullness of truth. Ultimate reality is found in him. This world is not going nowhere. It's headed somewhere. Jesus as the the ruler, as the king, and as the steward is bringing it to a point where all that is unjust will be judged and all that is broken will be mended and God himself will dwell again with people. The darkness of night will be gone and the eternal light of day will come. But not only truth, life. Jesus is the one who, though died by the power of God, the Father was raised to new life, and then all who believe in him, right, who were dead in their sins, belonging to sin, this is what Ephesians 2 says, can be raised and made alive together with Jesus. And not only life, the fullness of life, but, but, but fullness itself, the ability to lavish grace and forgiveness. The one who has been put in charge of all things longs to offer his fullness through the church. This is the prayer of Paul that we would know the love of Jesus that is beyond measurement and magnitude, beyond height and depth and breadth and length, and that would be filled with what? The fullness of God. Jesus is a fullness that fills and brings flourishing to life. His life is an example of human flourishing in a spiritual sense, in a relational sense with friendships and family, in a purpose, in a mission sense. He was marked by love and joy and generosity and laughter and gentleness. He was the perfect human being. But not only is his life worth emulating, his death is the way to new life for you and me. This is what the old song says. He bids me, the cross bids me, come and die and find that I may truly live. And his resurrection is, of course, the hope that something new is possible, that death and sin and pain will not have the last word and do not have the final say in the story. Do you not see that the language of this passage, learning the way of Christ, and the way in which Paul is saying, don't walk as the Americans do, is bringing us to a point of decision. Have you embraced the way of Jesus? Do you believe in his life and his death and his resurrection? And if you do, you will continually learn Christ. There'll be an ongoing renewal in the spirit of your mind. You will continually be liberated by putting off old patterns and putting on new, resembling more the likeness of Jesus. And you will continually living as a new creature, recreated, reborn 
by the power of Jesus. But this, this is the point of decision in the letter. Like, will the church continue to walk as Americans? Or will we walk as the new family of Jesus? Will you embrace King Jesus for all of his fullness? Will you, and if you do, then your life will be characterized by the classroom, by the clothing, by the new creation of Jesus. And if you are to be characterized by those things, you must be converted. The great spiritual father, Henry Scugall, wrote in his classic letter, The Life of God in the Soul of Man, that saving faith, converting faith, is a feeling persuasion of things. A feeling persuasion of spiritual things. Not a feeling. Not just some hyped up emotion or some spiritual high that you got. Not just a cognitive conviction of something, but a feeling persuasions. Do you have a feeling persuasion about the gospel of Jesus? Have you forsaken the way that is American for the way that is Christian? Right? Have you dethroned the self and given your life in devotion to Jesus? And for a number of the people involved in Emmanuel Fellowship, the answer is no. No, I haven't. And I've said from the very first gathering we've ever had that if that's where you're at spiritually, you're, you're welcome here. That this is a place where there's spiritual diversity, where there are people who embrace the faith, there's people who are exploring the faith, there's people who have doubts, who have questions. That is, you're welcome. But I want to continue to urge you to be honest that you're still not walking yet in the way of Jesus. Welcome, yes but walking in his ways, no. And for those of you who would say, yes, I've given my life to Jesus. I've, I'm trying to turn away from the old self and put on the new self. For those of you who say, yes, let me just urge you, would you be baptized? Like if you're a part of our church and you've not been baptized, I want to baptize you into the faith. And this letter is an incredible connection to the baptism language and liturgy of the early church. And as your pastor, I'm asking you to live your baptism. It's the sacrament that marks new life, right? Under the waters of death and then out of the waters to new life. The marker of a healthy church, remember, is, is not what it's offering to you, but what it's asking you. And I'm asking you, to live your baptism. When it comes to Emmanuel Fellowship, you need to know that we're not out to offer a bunch of things to the spiritual market, but we're here to invite you into a way of life that is ongoing spiritual renewal, drawing from the resources of the risen King, Jesus. And so Paul gives us three pictures, three metaphors of what it means to live your baptism. Ready for them? The first is a new classroom. To live your baptism means that you have entered into a new school where you are a learner of Jesus. Apart from Jesus, everyone in the world is walking in a former way of life, following the course and the pattern of the world, being conformed to the overall environment that leads towards sin and independence from God. But in the early church, what you see is that new believers 
They went under a course of learning Christ before they were baptized. They were to walk in the ways of Jesus before being baptized. And here's why. Because there is no such thing as a Christian who is not or who has stopped learning from Jesus. Right? Ongoing spiritual transformation is core to the Christian life. Even the first disciples of Jesus modeled this. I mean, look at Peter. Like his bravado and his immaturity as you read the gospel accounts is striking. But then if you go years down the road to the letters that he penned in the New Testament, first and second Peter, you see a man who's been changed, transformed, matured. Like, do we learn? Do we grow when we're comfortable and we're catered to? No. Peter didn't. But when our mind is spiritually renewed, stretched, our categories expanded, our spiritual thinking challenged, then we grow. Christ is, of course, the master teacher, providing what we need in the classroom of life to grow. He is the one who's offering the kind of invitation, hospitality, and care that you and I so need. But he's also pressing with challenge because he knows without a challenge, we will not grow. To live your baptism means to live as a learner in the classroom of Jesus, but it also means to put on some new clothes. To put on some new clothes because we are being freed from the patterns of sin and death, the old ways, and we are to put them off like a piece of clothing and to put on the clothing of Christ. That's the language here. That's what we're being taught. That the pattern of a Christian life is to put off certain things and to put on other things. If you're going to be baptized after all, you're you're going to be dunked and you're going to need some new clothes, right? And the old trappings of greed and of lust and of envy and of self-concern and focus are to be set aside such that the new virtues, the likeness of Jesus could begin to shape you. Paul is clear that your baptism is a sign of your liberation. That your old clothing, even though you didn't see it at first, was really shackles. And your new wardrobe is one of freedom. Now, I don't know about you, but a funny thing happens when I get a new pair of shoes. And I love a new pair of shoes, right? But there is this thing where, like, I, I, I'm so excited about the new pair of shoes, but I also, like, I, I kind of don't want to wear them. Like, because you know what it's like when you get that first scuff on a pair of fresh J's. Like, it's something in you just cringes, right? That's why, that's why I keep them in the box at times. But, like, here's the deal. Even though the old shoe has a, has a fit to it, my, my foot sort of slides into it and it feels comfortable, the new shoe is actually what I need. And when I don't wear them, I operate on this mindset that's scarce, that I don't trust, that where the shoes came from, there's, there's more coming. But the reality of abundant grace is that I have no fear to get the new clothes dirty. No fear because there is lavish grace such that I could scuff up, mess up, make mistakes, try and fail, learn as I go, and continue to put off the vices and the immaturities of my former life and to put on the virtue, the holiness and righteousness of Christ. Listen to Professor um, Snotty. He, he wants to urge us not just to new classroom and to new clothes, 
but he wants to urge us to new creation. To, to live your baptism is to walk in a lifestyle characterized by the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Right? I mean, for us, what we need is this pattern that embraces both the, the sacrifice of his death and also the victory of his resurrection. In order for ongoing spiritual transformation to happen in your life, in order for you to grow in maturity, you got to embrace that pattern of death and resurrection. I mean, after all, the master teacher is the one who said, to find your life, you got to lose it. And to take up your cross, what? Daily. So here we go. Listen to Professor Snotty, who I call Snotty. He's um, Klein Snodgrass, our scholarly guide through this book. He says, instead of looking for evidences of rebirth in Christians, we should be asking how many times a person has died. Rebirth without dying is Christian nonsense, and so is new creation without crucifixion, death. Dying with Christ and dying to self is necessary for Christian living. In putting on the new self, we participate in Christ's resurrection. Dying is not the only part of the sequence. It's the beginning. Life is recreated in line then with God's original intention. That's the blueprint. And the new being is not merely the absence of self-centeredness. It is the taking on the character of God and his righteousness. Dying is essential to the Christian life. Learning to die to self, learning to give, up, give away selfishness, learning to put off the old way and to put on the new, learning to live as a new creature. New creature, of course, means that the old creature is gone. That is the path towards ongoing spiritual transformation. Listen, because we're learners in the classroom, because we have new clothes, because new creation is possible by God's power, there is an expectation of maturation. An expectation of maturation. And so in close, let me, let me remind you that there is something for us to truly consider here in light of a pandemic. I wonder if how many of you now, of course, Governor Waltz has um, given us more freedoms to move about. But I wonder how many of you are simply longing for this moment to be over rather than learning what God would have you about him and about yourself in this season. How have you responded to a pandemic? What does it say about the things that you need to put off and you need to put on? What I'm urging you to do is to choose something that will grow you into maturity and to tell somebody about it. Do you know what God is asking you to put off and to put on that you might grow in maturity? Like if nothing comes to mind, perhaps you could just pick from the list of unity virtues at the beginning of chapter four. Perhaps you could say, you know what, humility or gentleness or patience, that's what I need to grow in. But choose something and tell somebody so that we as a church could continue to grow into maturity. Because you know what happens when you assume, right? You know what happens when you assume. Let's be people 
that don't assume firsthand knowledge of Jesus, that don't assume that others are following Jesus. Rather, let's be people that are spiritually curious, not in a critical and a judgmental way, but in a, a gentle way, in a patient way, in a humble way that says we want to help one another grow towards maturity in Christ. And let's stoke the fire of maturity such that its warmth could be spread to all from our church. Let's be a church that has an expectation of maturation so that we could grow up into every way, into Christ. Father, would you please raise us up as your children? Lord Jesus, King, would you teach us your ways? We are your students. And Holy Spirit, would your strengthening power live within us, carrying us together towards maturity? Amen.